0: latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health podcast, where we interview academics and entrepreneurs at the front lines of digital health. My name is Dr. Hamid Gumbari, and I am the deputy editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. If you like this episode and would like to support our work, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review and visit our website, the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. Welcome to the latest uh, edition of the Cardiovascular Digital Health uh, Podcast. Uh, My guest today is Dr. Treyanova and we're going to be talking about a very interesting paper called Anatomically Informed Deep Learning on Contrast Enhanced Cardiac Magnetic Resonance Imaging for Scar Segmentation and Clinical Feature Extraction. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Wonderful. Um, I know a lot of that our audience is familiar with your work, if you could maybe briefly describe where you are, what kind of problems you work on, and how did you start thinking about this particular problem?
1: Um, I am the Murray B. Sachs Endowed Chair in Biomedical Engineering at Johns Hopkins. And um, also I have um, another appointment um, in Cardiology, in Division of Cardiology at the School of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. I also direct the Alliance for Cardiovascular Diagnostic and Treatment Innovation, which is a body that crosses cross school boundaries and it combines engineers um, such as my team and also clinical electrophysiology, uh, people from radiology as well as mathematics um, and applied math. And the goal of our Alliance is to develop approaches that can help our patients as specifically we focus on uh, better treatments for um, cardiac arrhythmias better prediction of patient patient trajectories with um, a heart disease and particularly prediction of risk of sudden cardiac death
0: that's fantastic you certainly are one of the very few people that can straddle both the engineering and the clinical world very well uh, it's a position that's a difficult one to um, maneuver in. Um, So maybe um, we can start diving in the paper a little bit. Uh, Could you maybe set the background for our paper and why this paper is particularly important and how did you decide to work on this particular problem?
1: A lot of our work focuses on using images to construct computational models of the heart. So we can use those personalized models to predict uh, most frequently, what is the optimal strategy for treatment of arrhythmias, but also predict, again, risk of sudden cardiac death in different diseases. And in all that, one of the most time-consuming, onerous, routine, um, unpleasant work is image segmentation. I cannot tell you how many of my Team members are like always stuck at that, and then we typically have um, an army of undergraduate students who are helping us with that and learning. But it is such an onerous process, and being tired of doing that, and also being sometimes lazy when you get to a to a project which which requires that you segment I don't know three hundred or four hundred images then at some point we are like okay enough is enough we don't want to be doing this anymore we have to develop something that is sustainable that is automatic that takes 30 seconds so we can stop spending time on um routine you know boring work and we can focus on our exciting projects that's how it started
0: that's terrific um so can you tell me a little bit about the database that you started to work on, and particularly the input data that's going into your model? So I want to get an understanding of like where this data is coming from and what is the quality, what kind of patients this data was obtained from.
1: In general, in our work, we use um, contrast-enhanced MRIs. The reason we do that is because we focus a lot on arrhythmia mechanisms that arise from remodeling of the substrate. So typically SCAR is... Um, distribution of scar is arrhythmogenic. So, we have used um, contrast and has LGE gadolinium enhanced uh, CMR scans to visualize scar and then use these images to construct computational models in our work. So, um, but we have also worked with PET scans, we have worked with cine Um, We have worked with T1 mapping. So in general, what we need is robust tools to be able to process these images, and particularly the most frequent is LG MRI. So for this paper, we used, um, the data source was um, uh, a cohort of ischemic cardiomyopathy patients. We wanted to first test our deep learning approach in ischemic cardiomyopathy patients. So we used a... um, uh, a data, um, data set at Hopkins, um, which was started as the Pros ICD cohort, and then was extended. We used about 155 patients of uh, that cohort to um, to develop this um, th- this um, deep learning approach. That is um, that is the cohort that was the basis of our approach. In addition. Just for training, we augmented the data because we wanted to have more training data. Of course, the more training data, the better um, the outcome could be. So we augmented our data sources with additional um, data source. But LG MRIs are not publicly available. It's extremely hard to acquire a data set available somewhere. So we used publicly available uh, sources of CINE MRIs. And what we did is, again, when you don't have data, we come up with something interesting or novel to do is we did this novel style transfer to turn these um, cine images into LGE-like images. And so we describe in the paper how we use that style transfer, how we use histograms from patients with LGE scans to come up with um, these random distributions that nonetheless match the histograms in patients with um, LG, and so using that additional data source for training only, not for the test, we were able to have enough um, data. So we had uh, eleven um, about eleven hundred slices on um, from the Hopkins data source, the the real LG MRI, and also we had about uh, 1,300 slices that we did a style transfer to make them look um, like LGE. Basically, 155 patients and then 246 patients with cine that we converted to LGE MRI. So uh, so we used for training about 75% of the real LGE MRI and added to it the um, LGE-like scans for training. And then we Only for testing, we had the real uh, part of the real LG MRIs. That's how we we did the training and testing.
0: Like quite an involved process. And I can only imagine the difficulty of organizing this the way you described it. So fantastic uh, work there. Uh, Now, there's... a part that I think I wanted to spend a little bit of time on was the actual architecture of the uh, deep learning network and how your network actually takes the input data as you described and kind of it creates the output of interest, which is our the, the prediction problem that we we're trying to solve here. So if you could maybe spend a little time walk me through the the network and then particularly maybe um, describe it the way you described it in the in in the paper, which is stages. Um, of that it, that it goes through
1: um, so what we really aimed here to do is to overcome all limitations uh, or, or most of the limitations that have been that are out there in previous segmentation approaches. They are very um, sparse regarding lGmRI, particularly segmentation of scar it's hardly there. are very, very few papers, and they have a lot of limitations. majority of those limitations are that you need manual inputs. Let's say apex and base are very difficult to segment. Uh, SCAR is difficult Mm -hmm. to segment. There is always misalignment of slices. So for us, what was very important was to have a, to sustain geometrical fidelity of our segmentations. So we don't have slice misalignment and we can use these segmented images, um, three-dimensional left ventricular volume of segmented images to use for numerous projects. We can. We wanted to automatically be able to calculate volume, let's say left ventricular volume of uh, total scar And these things are difficult to do normally. You do slice by slice. Again, those are manual um, processes. So we wanted at once when developed the segmentation, so it isn't just to segment, but also to have this ability to have um, anatomical accuracy and fidelity of the segmentations and to be able to instantaneously calculate variables, which can be very important in clinical decision-making. And also, we had something else in mind um, that actually became reality, and maybe I'll spend a couple of minutes to talk about that later. But we used this approach for a prediction of risk of sudden cardiac death in another paper that just appeared, and we wanted to have this ability to... Um, you know, to not rely on any manual segmentation. So all is um, automatic. So the, um, the segmentation basically that we have in the paper consists, it's a cascade of neural networks and it has three stages. And um, the first is a, d- a deep learning um, network that what it does is just creates the region of interest. So basically it's tightly cropped region around the left ventricle. We do that because in an MRI scan, the heart is part of it, the myocardium is small part of it. And you have so many regions of different um, intensity surrounding the myocardium. So you don't want to confuse the network to be learning from these other regions. So we crop the first network crops the image very close around um, the heart. And so we call this the region of interest um, neural network. After that, the next network um, segments the myocardium boundaries as well as the scar. So both of these um, neural networks are what is called encoder-decoder, in which you have the neural network has numeral layers, distills the image to the most important, and then recreates the image. Both of those networks have similar similar architecture called resume net. Um, so once we do that segmentation of myocardium and scar, we want to now have another network. This is the third network that ensures that anatomical accuracy is maintained. And the way we do that is, um, we create this sort of, um, compressed, if you will, representation of the ground truth. And we use this. um, approach in which we create latent space and we check um, for anatomical accuracy in this latent space for every segmentation. Basically, um, each check uh, represents checking how distant is one point in from from another in the latent space. We want to have them very close and we sort of basically the images, the segmented images get adjusted to represent get adjusted to sustain that anatomical accuracy that our ground truth has. In other words, if I can like rephrase that in a simpler way is our third anatomical network makes sure that whatever anatomical accuracy the ground truth has, that same anatomical accuracy is maintained in the final segmentations because many previous um, approaches have just segmented the slices and they are misaligned and actually inappropriate for what we wanted to do. So that's the structure of the three network. So as a result of that, we get a very beautiful, if you will, representation of the segmented volume of the left ventricle with the distribution of the scar in it. Um, and we, out of the As an output of that network, we can get instantaneously what is the the left ventricular volume, the total volume of scar, et cetera, important clinical variables. So that's overall the structure of the network.
0: That was a fantastic description of a very complex um, network. And um, I would definitely encourage our our readers to look at the diagrams um, because as you described them, they're quite beautiful um, in in the way they they are represented. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about the results and the performance metrics of your model?
1: Um, So it's interesting, um, we really, as I said before, we really wanted to overcome the limitations of previous approaches. And a lot of the previous approaches had a lot of issues with apex and base segmentation. So that's the first place where we really paid attention. Um, there is a lot of artifact around the space. You know, the base is very hard to segment because you have, you know, during segmentation, you can get these sort of c shape images. It's not a whole circle, which is the, the, you know, the, the cross section of the ventricle, but it is part sticking up. And um, so it was very important to make sure that we have really good results or adequate results on par with the rest of the ventricle where everybody is likely to perform better. We wanted to have really good results in those areas. In one of our figures, we have, um, we look at the the DICE scores for segmenting for um, the first network that does only the region of interest and also the second network that segments the myocardium and um, the SCAR. And what really we wanted to achieve and we succeeded is to have the same accuracy at apex, you know, mid ventricle and base. And that is part of having good accuracy throughout and also sustaining anatomical fidelity. So um, that's that's where we focused. We had several um, metrics by which we evaluated the performance of our network um, we also compared it with previous approaches, and we have, um, for instance, um, one of the um, one of the parameters that we performed the best was the Hausdorff distance, which tells you how different from each other are two images. And in this case, is the ground truth and our segmentation. And we were by far um, the best in in terms of that metric. Um, overall, um, the, the important thing also was that, um, you know, it is, again, I'm repeating that numerous times, it, it has no manual intervention. A lot of the other approaches, this is another way you can compare performance. What do you need to do to, um, to get the segmentation, right? Many people would, in other previous research, they would remove parts of the apex and bay so they don't have to deal with these regions. Or they have manual pre-adjustment or correction. We have no manual intervention whatsoever. Everything is done automatic, um, and then um, basically we don't touch it. It's in about thirty seconds. We can have a full segmentation of myocardium and scar.
0: That's um, really fantastic um, description end to end of. Um, how you actually can use the raw images and then kind of drive the important decisions that you have. Can, can you tell me a little bit about the importance of this work and maybe kind of uh, discuss some of the subsequent work that you've published? Um, you kind of briefly mentioned them, but if you could maybe dive a little bit deeper because I think it'll really clarify why this work is so important.
1: In our hands, for us, this is really important because as I said before, we use a lot of images. So um, my lab has also moved a lot into these deep learning approaches. And as we want to um, use deep learning approaches for, or just machine learning approaches for prediction of patient trajectory or outcome, um, we always want to, we have found that imaging is generally underappreciated, underused, that's the better word, underused people would calculate let's say total volume or one or two hand picked parameters that are you know designed by the researcher and the vast majority of the pixels with their intensity remain unused so we would love to be able to incorporate in our whatever prediction algorithms we have this wealth of data this, that is contained in a clinical image. So that's one of the motivation of developing these algorithms. So we intend to um, use this, as I said, for model construction, for computational model uh, construction, but also in a lot of other research avenues that we currently are undertaking in um, my lab and in our center to move this closer to the clinical decision-making. And the first use of this, um, part of this, approach was to predict risk of sudden cardiac death in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy and this is a new paper that we just got published in nature cardiovascular research that um to me i have never gotten so much interest from media in anything that we have published and we have some big papers, you know, in nature and science journals. And this I have never seen before. It had, it sort of captured the um, public imagination and it uses this approach not for segmentation of the scar because the neural network that we developed in that approach learns from raw images, learns, we don't have, we don't segment the scar. It learns because when you segment the scar, there is a level of thresholding. You say, this is a scar, this is not. We just wanted the network to learn from the raw pixels, but we use the first network to have the region of interest that is passed then to the to the to the learning algorithm. So um, it was very important part of this new paper that got published in Nature Cardiovascular Medicine, which predicts risk of sudden cardiac death. We actually predict um, the time to, to sudden death over a period of 10 years, and we create personalized patient um, curves that are probability of having certain cardiac death over 10 years. So this was very novel approach and it was made possibly and by this, essentially by this paper. It was so important in that development. In addition, we are also using this already in patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. So we have processed, we have uh, processed a large cohort um, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, over thousand patients with this algorithm. We did some retraining and adaptation of this segmentation algorithm, and we we applied that to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy the cohort. Works very well. Works fast. We have a sarcoidosis cohort that we are also going to study. Similarly, we have used this. Um, to segment part of the, the cohort, and we will continue. We just got a, a, a grant on that, so we will continue to be using similar this approach or similar approaches for image processing for a variety of diseases, um, you know, non-ischemic um, cardiomyopathy and others. So I think I see a lot of future in this approach, in all these um, advancements for clinical decision making for better management of arrhythmias in um, our patient population.
0: So the the last segment is um, Dr. Trayanova's production functions. Can you tell us a little bit about how you stay so productive?
1: Um, So, okay. Uh, That is a um, question that doesn't have a uniform answer because it just depends on many factors. The first is... Um, having smart people and giving them freedom um it is not i'm not a micromanager. generally i think people can be extraordinarily creative so, so the first author of this paper is the same first author of the paper that got published in nature cardiovascular research that i was telling you that made so much um waves in the, in social media, etc., cetera. And extremely creative guy who just came up with these approaches. I have many other members of my team who are just very creative, but the key is to sort of make them understand, well, it is you who is the face of that project. You know, it's yours. I can help, but you know more than me. I always tell my students, I cannot tell them what to do because they have to know more than me. So I think this is a very important factor is to let people develop their skills, let people um, feel responsible ownership of what they are doing. And this provides impetus, buy-in, a responsibility for what you're doing rather than me spoon-feeding So if I have to summarize who thrives in my lab and who becomes very productive, it's these people that do not require that I sit behind them and above their shoulder and give them instructions all the time. I am very detailed when we get to a paper because I want to make sure all the results are correct. The paper is written perfectly, but I would love to give uh, space for creativity. Giving space for creativity, I think, is the most important, is the key element in productivity.
0: how do you structure your day do you have like a you wake up in the morning is there certain routines that you have and do you
1: wake up in the morning i wake up in the morning i walk to my office right here in my house often i don't even get out of my pyjama these days it's been like that for a couple years now because we are not you know we are computational lab even the clinical meetings are on zoom and it's all day sitting in front of the computer you eat your meal in front of the computer you maybe. You know, after dinner, you work on your computer, it's become that way. I don't necessarily like it, but that those are my days right now. You know, as things develop, I'm hoping that in the new year, uh, new academic year, when classes are going to be, until now, they were online at Hopkins, majority of them. So my my I taught online all the time. So I'm hoping with the fall, when I teach um, the undergraduates, I will be on campus and I will be more frequently in my lab. And with my people, but it's been difficult. I think, you know, um, I do want that community back and it's still, we haven't gotten to that point.
0: now that's certainly true. Uh, well, I we want to thank you for taking the time from your very busy schedule to speak with me. Very excited to publish this paper in our journal and very excited to see this kind of, this line of work progress to really solve very serious and major public health problem in sudden cardiac death. So thank you again, and uh, hopefully, and soon we get to see each other in person.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was such a fun to discuss that. I'm very excited about all our work, so giving me the chance to sort of show my excitement to the listeners is really uh, appreciated.
0: Thank you.